After my grandfather's death last summer, some of his personal effects and papers were passed on to me. And among the few sheets of paper that were given to me at that time is a couple of sheets stapled together from 1976 detailing the settlement of the estate of my grandfather's uncle, a man named Estel Sippel. Estel was his mother's brother. And the circumstances of that settlement were unique in that my grandfather's uncle left no heirs himself. And so the way that the property that he owned had been deeded to him by his father, it was deeded in such a way that if he left no heirs, then the property would revert back to the the heirs of the estate of his father. His father was named John Sippel. And so in those few sheets that that I received, it shows the the settlement of this man's estate. It's His property was sold at an auction and his assets were used to pay off his remaining debts and expenses, the cost of the funeral and so on. And then the remainder of the value of his estate reverted back to his father's heirs. And so these papers show the breakdown of how much went to each of the heirs of his father. And so many of John Sipple's children had already died by that point, and so most of the heirs listed out on that paper were his grandchildren, so that would have included my my grandfather and his siblings and his cousins. And now those pages and the people listed on them showed the, the rightful and legal heirs of the property in question. The people who were listed there had a right, a legal right, it's the money that was coming to them in the estate. Being who they were, they had a title to it. Their allotted portion of the value of the estate was theirs, and it came to them at the proper time. This is what it means to be an heir of someone's property. Now, in that case, depending on kind of where they, where they stood in the division of the property, some of them got as much as... 3000 and some dollars, for many of them, it was down in the hundreds of dollars. But as we look to our text in Titus chapter 3 this morning, we will see how the Apostle Paul describes Christians as heirs. Heirs of something worth infinitely more than a few hundred or a few thousand dollars. We'll see that Paul describes Christians as heirs of the hope of eternal life. That is to say that being justified by the grace of God, we are now the rightful inheritors of eternal life. By the grace of God declaring us righteous, we've become the legal and rightful heirs of eternal life. And this is truly amazing love and mercy and grace at work. And this text explains this to us in great measure. So let's, let's look to the text. We're in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. This morning, Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior And his love for mankind appeared. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, 
so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now these verses show us the way that we were apart from Christ. They show us the greatness of the love and mercy of God, and they show us the effect of this grace. We see what our past lives were like, and thus what the lives of those who are still apart from Christ are like even now. We see the great mercies of God in salvation, in which we see the the way in which this salvation was brought to us and accomplished in us, and we see now who we have become in Christ. And so as we consider these verses, we'll consider them under three headings. First, our past. Secondly, God's mercy. And thirdly, the change. Our past, God's mercy, the change. And so first of all, our past, and we see that in verse 3. Paul had just urged Titus how he was to instruct believers to be subject to the authorities. Chapter 3, verse 1, to malign no one, to be peaceable, show every consideration for all men in verse 2. And now he grounds that instruction that he had just given on the fact that all of us once were like they are now. In case anyone were to demur from Paul's instructions about how we're to conduct ourselves toward all of mankind... If anyone were to say that the people of this world are too wicked or too difficult to show kindness and courtesy to them, Paul reminds believers that, hey, once upon a time, you were like them. And God, in his grace, had mercy upon us, and therefore it is only right for us to be gentle, peaceable, and to show every consideration for them in light of what God has done for us. God showed mercy and gentleness and consideration toward us, When we were in that state, we likewise should do the same for them. As those who have received mercy, we should be those who show mercy. And so, what were we like in the past? Well, he lists it out for us. We were foolish. Whether or not we were wise in regard to worldly matters, earthly matters, we were in the dark spiritually. We were foolish in the sight of God. They say that everybody plays the fool, and you and I are no exceptions We were like the fool in the book of Proverbs. Likewise, we were disobedient. Maybe disobedient to earthly authorities, but certainly disobedient to God. We willfully did what we wanted, regardless of God's will. We were also deceived. We were led astray. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 2, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. The point is, is that Apart from the grace of God in Christ, you're set adrift on a sea of opinion, easily led one way or the other. You can easily imbibe false things, false ideas. And so we believed lies. We believed untrue things about God. We believed untrue things about the world. We believed untrue things about ourselves. And that deception then impacted us. Because when you have a false understanding of reality... You're going to act in accordance with that false understanding. This is why people who are drunk on alcohol or high on drugs sometimes do such ridiculous and harmful things. It's because they are deceived about reality. They think certain things are true when in fact those things are not true. And this result can be anything from mild injuries to death, either for themselves or for others. It is much the same way with unbelievers, including ourselves, when we were unbelievers. Unbelievers are deceived about the world. 
the nature and the depth of the deception varies from person to person, but Satan doesn't really care as long as he can keep people in the dark and deceived and keep them away from the truth. He is a liar and is the father of lies. And so Revelation 12.9 describes him as the one who deceives the whole world. Outside of Christ, the world is deceived, and Satan is the one who is at the root of that deception. And being deceived about God and ourselves and about the world and about the nature of reality, men and women behave themselves in this world like they are out of their minds. They are deceived, and they live in light of that deception as if it were reality. And he also says that we were enslaved. Enslaved to what? Well, he says, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Lust is the desire for something illicit and wicked, and pleasure is the attainment of that illicit and wicked thing for which one longs. This illicit web of desire and attainment captures and ensnares those who are apart from Christ. While those who are so enslaved may think that they are actually the most free of all, that they're free to do whatever they want, whatever they may choose to do, and free to practice whatever they want, this is actually not true freedom. The truth of the matter is, is that you're going to serve something. Our Lord Jesus tells us in John chapter 8 that everyone who sins is slave to sin. The Apostle Paul tells us, Romans 6.16, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? We are either going to be enslaved to various lusts and pleasures and enslaved to sin, or else we're going to be enslaved to Christ, slaves to obedience resulting in righteousness. Suffice it to say, being enslaved to lusts and pleasures does not end well. Those lusts and pleasures are destructive in themselves, and they lead to destruction and to judgment. Paul goes on painting this picture, and he says that we... We're spending our lives in malice and envy. Malice is simply ill will towards others. No shortage of that in the world, is there? Envy has been helpfully defined as the grudging spirit that cannot bear to contemplate someone else's prosperity or their success. You see someone else succeeding, you see someone else prospering, and it grates you because you want it. They got it, and I really wanted it. Someone else gets what we wanted, they get the promotion, they get the honor, they get some blessing, some privilege, and we get jealous. We become envious of the good things that have happened to others. We become envious of the good attributes that others possess. We wish that they did not have them. We wish that we did have them. Hence the the ill will, the malice towards them that arises in the heart. And this is wicked. Rather than rejoicing with those who rejoice and praising God for the good things that he has given to others, we become angry, we seek our own advantage, and we desire the destruction and the loss of others, that they would lose the good things that they have, that those good things would be lost to them, and maybe even given to us. In such a condition as this, it's no surprise that Paul goes on and says we were hateful. Such a life as we were living renders us despicable, and detestable people. Instead of loving one another, he goes on and says that we were hating one another. They hated us, we hated them. What a wonderful world sin has spawned. 
Paul says that this is who we were outside of Christ. It's not to say that every unbeliever embodies those characteristics in the exact same way, because they do not. Sinners are different. But apart from Christ, they're all wicked. Despite that, God was kind to us, as we see in what follows. And therefore, as those who were once wicked ourselves, and as those who have now received mercy in Christ, we must be the ones who seek to be understanding toward those who are in bondage to sin. We can see they're in bondage. We can see that they're deceived. We can see that they're enslaved. Therefore, we have to be the ones who, in the words of verse 2, do not malign them or peaceable towards them, gentle and show every consideration for them. We understand the situation they're in. They do not. And also, Christian friends, allow this description of our lives before we became Christians to be a sobering reminder of what we once were. Or perhaps if you became a believer at a young age before many of these things could perhaps come to full flower in your life, allow these words to remind you of what you would have become apart from the grace of God because the seeds of every kind of wickedness were already there in your hearts and they were already starting to grow. They were already starting to show their rotten fruit. Now maybe that fruit did not get quite as ripe as the fruit in someone else's life, but nevertheless, even at a young age, those things were starting to come out. The malice, the envy, the ill will towards others, the disobedience for sure, foolishness. This list in verse 3 should cause all of us as Christians to be humble, realizing who we were apart from the grace of Christ and who we would be still today apart from the grace of Christ. And this list in verse 3 should also cause us to be thankful for what God has done for us as we see in what follows. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, let me just ask you, do you see anything of yourself there in verse 3? Look carefully. Do you see it? Do you see yourself there? Truth be told, you are there. This is what God says of you. But the good news of the gospel, the good news of our text this morning is that God is merciful and God is gracious. And so look to Christ and we'll see, we'll see more of this in, in what follows. And this brings us then to our second point, which is God's mercy. And so we see the, the great contrast that occurs there between verse 3 and verse 4. Verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. There's this great change that has happened for us as believers. We were once foolish, deceived, enslaved, disobedient, and so on, but then something happened. What was it that happened? The kindness of God our Savior appeared. God's love for mankind appeared. There we were, paving the road to hell for ourselves with our folly and our disobedience, sinking deeper and deeper into the slavery caused by sin, having no goodness at all to commend ourselves to God's favor. But then God's kindness and God's love for mankind appeared. It appeared in the sending of his Son into the world. This passage is thus remarkably parallel to what we read together earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, where Paul was describing how we had lived among the evil and wicked in this world, but then God in his great love and mercy intervened and made us alive together with Christ and saved us 
by his grace. And so Paul says here, the kindness and kindness of God and his love for mankind appeared. In other words, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In loving the world, he took action. He sent Christ into the world to save us. Christ lived sinlessly and went to the cross and offered himself up there as a sacrifice for sins, the just for the unjust. He takes our unrighteousness and sins upon himself and bears them in his own body on the tree. And then he gives his righteousness to us, as we'll see uh, later on in this passage. And this is the heart of the gospel. And notice the, the specificity of Paul here. He, as he tells us the, the how and the why of this salvation, he does so in a not this, but that way of speaking. This great salvation was accomplished not because of any works which we had done in righteousness. We hadn't done any works in righteousness. We had nothing to offer but it was done because of God's mercy. The teaching of these verses lay out for us so clearly the great freeness of salvation. Salvation of God comes to lost mankind completely as a free gift. It was very costly to God himself, very costly to our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, but it comes to us as a free gift. And this means that there are no previous requirements that must be satisfied so as to make ourselves worthy to come to Christ. We're never worthy to come to Christ to be saved by him. And so he makes no demands that we must satisfy before we're allowed to come. God didn't save us because we were sufficiently convicted for our sins, though we should be convicted of our sins. God didn't save us because of our repentance, though God does command that we repent and turn away from our sins, and we're responsible to do so, and true repentance will always accompany saving faith. But God didn't save us because of anything that we had done nor because of anything that we would do. It's not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but it was according to his mercy. Pure mercy, pity, and compassion of God towards us. And so how did God's mercy, this pity and compassion, take effect in us? Well, we see that in verse 5, where Paul says that it was by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. According to his mercy, he saved us, and he accomplished this by the washing of renewal, excuse me, the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And so we have these, these two things here, which are both worked in us by the Holy Spirit. We have the, the washing of regeneration, and we also have the renewal of the Holy Spirit. These two things are distinct from one another, but nevertheless both necessary for our salvation. This language of the washing of regeneration is in reference to the new birth, to being born again. Jesus and Nicodemus, of course, discuss this in John chapter 3. And when we think about John chapter 3, in connection with Paul's words here in Titus 3, 5, it's very interesting how we see these themes of the new birth, the Holy Spirit, and water all connected there both in John 3 and here in Titus 3. Jesus said that unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then Jesus reiterated those, that same thing in different words when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And thus, to be born again is to be born of the Spirit. To be born of water is to be born of the Spirit. Water being a symbol of the Spirit, a symbol of the cleansing and life-giving work of the Holy Spirit. And in connection with this, it's noteworthy how the prophets of old spoke about this regeneration, 
by the Holy Spirit. The Lord had spoken through the prophet Ezekiel in such a way as to combine the image of water with the renewal of the heart and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And so Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, we read this. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinance. This cleansing with water symbolizes the cleansing from sin. It's tied to the giving of the spirit. Likewise, Isaiah 44 verse 3, we read this. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And we also see this language of, of the spirit as being poured out in places like Ezekiel 39, 29, Joel 2, 28 and 29, and Zechariah 12, 10. And so it is that here in Titus 3, we see the fulfillment of the, those prophecies. We see in verse 6 how God the Father poured out the Spirit richly upon His people through Jesus Christ our Savior. And in this we see all three persons of the Holy Trinity at work in our salvation. We see God the Father's kindness and His love for mankind. We see implicitly the appearing of this kindness. How did the kindness appear? It appeared in the sending of His Son into the world. Subsequently followed by the Father pouring out the Spirit through the Son, through Jesus Christ our Savior. All three persons of the Holy Trinity are at work in bringing this great salvation to us. And so let's consider a little bit the shape of this salvation as Paul has laid it out here. The washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. First, God saved us by the washing of regeneration. In his great love for mankind, he poured out the Spirit upon those whom he savingly calls to himself giving them new life, washing them from their sin, making them clean, making them new in His sight. And so we find in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Christ. The washing of regeneration were made new. And though the waters of baptism do not give spiritual life or bring regeneration or bring the forgiveness of sins, nevertheless, baptism is the outward sign of the inward and spiritual reality that takes place in the life of believers when they receive this washing of regeneration from the work of the Holy Spirit. The 17th century Baptist Hercules Collins expressed it this way, Baptism is a lively representation of regeneration. The apostle alludes unto baptism when he speaks of the washing of regeneration. His meaning is that the ordinance is a lively badge, symbol, and sign of regeneration in the new birth. When someone becomes a Christian, they are truly born again. When someone becomes a Christian, has faith in Christ, they are born of water, and born of the Spirit. And this happens apart from the waters of baptism. But nevertheless, baptism by water is the outward sign of the inward reality. And as the outward sign of that reality, it testifies to all who observe and to the baptized person himself of that inward reality. And so Christian friends, as we think this morning about this washing of regeneration, think back to your own baptism. Not because that's when you receive the washing of regeneration, but because that testifies to you of the fact that you have been washed by this washing of regeneration. We were as filthy as all of that 
which was described there in verse 3. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, and so on. And then God in his mercy saved us by the washing of regeneration. The Holy Spirit washed our hearts and souls clean from all of that filthiness and gave us new life in Christ. There are at least two mistakes that we can make when we think about the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. One mistake is to think of them in a magical way. In this case, as if it were the waters of baptism themselves that conveyed new life and forgiveness. The waters of baptism do not do that. But on the other hand, the other error that we must avoid is to think of baptism as simply an empty sign. As if it's just something that we do because Jesus told us to do it, so I guess we better do it. That's true. Jesus did tell us to do it, and we should obey. But Jesus doesn't tell us to do meaningless things. The ordinance of baptism has great meaning, and it demonstrates to us who are baptized and to others the great thing that God has done for us when he saved us through Christ. And when God saved us through faith in Christ, what happened to us? We were united to Christ. We were united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so in Romans 6, Paul talks about us having been buried with Christ through baptism and raised again to walk in newness of life. Christ died for our sins, and in coming to him, we die to our sins. He was raised for our justification, and by faith, we are united with him in his resurrection, raised to walk in newness of life, washed from all of our sins. And baptism is the the outward sign and the emblem of all of these things. All who rely on Christ and on Christ alone should therefore be able to think back to their baptism and be encouraged that just as our outward bodies were plunged under the waters in baptism and washed, so also our souls and hearts have been washed and cleansed by the blood of Christ and by the Holy Spirit. The outward washing doesn't wash away sins in the least, but it does point to the inward washing, the washing of regeneration, the forgiveness of sins by the blood of Christ which is applied to us internally by the working of the Holy Spirit. So in his great mercy, God saved us by the washing of regeneration and also by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. First, we were given new life and regeneration and the washing away of our sins, and then comes this renewal of the Holy Spirit, the renewal which the Holy Spirit brings to us as we live now as the people of Christ. This renewal is in reference to our sanctification. Sanctification is God's gracious work in which our corrupted nature is restored so that we die to sin more and more and live to God more and more. Our our natures are restored and conformed to the image of Christ, conformed to the image of God himself. And God performs this work in us, not because of us, but because of Christ. This gracious, renewing work is accomplished within us by the Holy Spirit. And we're restored to the image of God. And Paul describes it this way in Ephesians 4, 22-24, where he says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness Of the truth. So, this renewal is accomplished in us by the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit graciously works within us, we take off the old self, these old sins, and we put on the new self, which is created in the likeness of God, in holiness and truth. 
Unless we read in Philippians 2, 12 and 13 that we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Put off the old self. We put on the new self. And the only reason that we can do this is because it is God himself who is at work within us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this sanctification, then, is the road on which we travel. It's the road on which we must travel to attain eternal life. This is, this is how God saves us. He saves us not only by the washing of regeneration, but also by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works within our hearts and makes us holy. And as this holiness takes root within us, we repent more and more of our sins and we bring forth the fruits of new obedience to the commandments of God. Our obedience doesn't justify us, but nevertheless it is necessary. As one writer put it, Good works do not indeed serve the interest of meriting salvation, but taking possession of it. Or as Francis Turretin put it, we acknowledge the necessity of good works, not as the causes on account of which life is given to us, but as the effects which testify that life has been given to us. In other words, if there's no renewal in our lives, what can this mean but that we are in fact not partakers of the Holy Spirit? If the Holy Spirit has not renewed us at all, it is safe to conclude that he's not granted to us the washing of regeneration either. Those two things, the new birth and practical renewal, or in other words, justification and sanctification, go hand in hand together. Certainly, sanctification differs from justification in many ways. Justification is complete when we believe. Sanctification will always be incomplete in this life, and there will always be room for us to grow in holiness always more room to be conformed to the image of Christ. But nevertheless, the two always go hand in hand together. They both begin at the same time. We're justified when we first believe. We start being sanctified the moment we first believe. To borrow the words of J.C. Ryle, both alike are necessary to salvation. No one ever reached heaven without a renewed heart as well as forgiveness, without the Spirit's grace as well as the blood of Christ, without a meetness for eternal glory, as well as a title. The one is just as necessary as the other. Once someone has received the washing of regeneration, there will, of necessity, be an accompanying renewal. And thus it is that Paul speaks of the Christians in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6.11, when he says of them, But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And so, Christian friends, observe in, in these words here, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, the great mercies of God. We were filthy in our sins, but then the kindness of God and his love for mankind appeared, and he saved us, he saved the people for himself, purely on the basis of mercy. And so remember, once again, that God loves you, and he loves you not in a vague and sentimental way, but in a real and concrete way. God's kindness appeared in the sending of Christ, culminating in his death on the cross, the death of the sinless Son of God for a lost and disobedient and rebellious human race. As we come to the Lord's table in a few moments, meditate on that afresh once again and allow your soul to be refreshed by the remembrance of the death of Christ for you. His body was offered up, his blood was shed for you. What is this but the kindness of God and his love for mankind appearing? Be reminded once again that the gospel is good news. Not just good news generally, but it's good news for you. Good news for you today. And the end result of this change is what we see in verse 7. 
which is our third point, the change. And so verse 7 says, So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the change that has happened to us. Now, in the kindness of God, we've been justified by his grace. This is to say we've been declared righteous in his sight, counted righteous, reckoned as righteous by God on account of Christ. Again, this happens not because we are righteous in and of ourselves. Rather, this happens by grace, through faith. By grace, we are called to faith in Christ. By grace, we believe upon him, trust in him for our salvation and for eternal life, united to him. And then by that faith, his righteousness becomes ours. It's just like in a marriage. We say, with all my worldly goods, I thee endow. And so it is in Christ. When we are joined to him by faith, he endows us with his righteousness. As we're declared righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. Justified by his grace so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's justification that gives us a claim or a title to eternal life. We're made heirs of the hope of eternal life. And when we see the word hope in scripture, it denotes a a confident expectation. And hope that is rightly placed as a confident expectation because it is based on God's promise. And indeed, eternal life is something that is promised by God. Paul was very clear about this back in chapter 1, verse 2. If you have your Bible open to Titus, you can, you can look back there, and Paul says, In the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. The hope of eternal life is thus an ancient promise. This ancient promise was a covenant between God the Father and God the Son, our Lord. This was the the plan of salvation. Just as God had chose his people in Christ before the foundation of the world, so we're also told concerning our Lord in 1 Peter 1.20 that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And the context of 1 Peter 1 makes it clear that this is in reference to his death, shedding his blood on our behalf. And in time, then, this eternal promise that existed between the Father and the Son was given to mankind. On the very day that Adam and Eve sinned, on the very day that they cut themselves off from the tree of life in the garden and cut themselves off from the life of God by their sin, that very day was the day that God gave them promise of a Savior. And now that promise has come to full light and fulfillment in the coming of Christ. And so it is that we, being justified by his grace, are now made heirs of the hope of eternal life. The right to eternal life was stripped away from us there in the garden by Adam's sin. But now, this right to eternal life, the fact that we are heirs of it, is now restored to us through the grace of Christ. And we wait for it with firm and confident expectation. So this is the amazing grace of God in the gospel. That God takes those who are on the road to hell and makes us heirs to heaven. Just like those cousins and family members of my grandfather who had their names on a sheet of paper showing that they had a right to the inheritance of this estate. So also, all those in Christ are heirs of the hope of eternal life. Not merely a few 
hundred or few thousand dollars, but eternal life itself. This is the greatest gift possible. Nothing that we could do to earn it or achieve it for ourselves, but God has accomplished it all for us through grace. All praise and glory be to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great grace which you have had for us, that being justified by the grace of Christ, we are now made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to despise the greatest inheritance possible, but rather that we would eagerly anticipate it, that we would long for it. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.